Good morning again, Nat Street family. Uh, welcome those of you who are joining us a little later today, the Sunday. And as we do gather, we're going to continue to celebrate in our Advent season where we look forward uh, to the rising hope that is found in the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, and I've heard from some of you that we've had quite a great turnout uh, last week for our 100th and 10th anniversary. Um, so I just want to thank all of those who um, attended um, celebrated not just 110 years of our church, uh, but 110 years of, our, of God's faithfulness uh, to our church. I really wish I could have participated in it, um, but I saw from the recording that uh, it went quite well with uh, Pastor Stephen and Pastor Novi, so I just want to thank them. Now, as we move forward in our sermon today, uh, the scripture passage that we're going to read uh, shortly, it reminded me of a very curious creature, this curious uh, microscop microscopic creature called uh, water bears. You know, some people think, you know, this creature looks adorable. Um, personally, I think it looks like it comes out of a nightmare. Uh, but these are actually one of the, the craziest living organisms uh, found on this planet because for all intents and purposes, uh, this creature here is pretty much indestructible. Uh, scientists, they, for some reason or another, I don't know why they would conjure this idea, but they thought like, hey, let's see, let's see at what temperature can we actually kill this thing. And so they froze it in negative 200 degrees Celsius or negative 328 degrees Fahrenheit, just a little colder than it is outside right now. And so this creature, it would, it would stop moving, it would stop breathing, uh, it would stop growing, and its digestion would stop. So medically speaking, it is dead. But warm them up and they kind of just wake back up and continue going about their day as if nothing happened. On the other end of the spectrum, uh, you could literally throw them into boiling water, which would kill just about every other living organism on this planet. But even in those temperatures, uh, this curious eight-legged creature would just thrive and, and continue to live. Uh, we have even dehydrated them and shot them out into outer space uh, where they were exposed to, obviously, lethal amount of UV radiation from the sun, but bring them back to Earth, give them a bit of water, and they happily move along and go about their day. And so this creature is absolutely terrifying. Nothing, it seems, can kill them. And the reason why I bring up this nearly indestructible creature um, is not that I want to give you guys nightmares tonight, uh, but it somewhat resembles the people of God. <laughs> curiously enough, and the promises of God, that no matter what tragedy, no matter what misfortune the people of God encounter throughout Scripture, we always see that God protects them, that there's always a remnant that remains despite even the most awful of tragedies. But more than that, no matter what happens here on earth, no matter what we do, how we rebel, the promises of God are also, quote-unquote, indestructible. They remain standing no matter what. Nothing can shake God's desire to be faithful to us. And so with that said, I would like us to look at our sermon passage today, which comes from Isaiah chapter 11, uh, verses 1 to 10. I want you to catch on to this theme of indestructibleness and, and of a new hope and of promise. And so let's read this today. And this is the word of the Lord. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of the knowledge and the fear of God. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. 
He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will, die, will lie down with the goats. The calf and the lion, the yearling together, and the little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, and the young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den, and the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover over the sea. And that day, the roots of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him, and his resting place will be glorious. Now, as we read this passage, I think it's important to contextually understand uh, what is going on specifically in the timeline of the nation of Israel at this point. So we learn that Israel has continued to be unfaithful to God, and Israel has continued to practice idolatry, and despite the multiple calls from various prophets to repent and to return back to God, they just simply would not listen, and they continued in their idolatry. And as a result of this, they lost the privilege of living in the promised land, since they didn't uphold their end of the deal by responding appropriately to God's faithfulness to them. And so as a result of this, the growing Assyrian empire begins to expand its borders and eventually takes over the nation of Israel and basically sends almost all of its inhabitants either to the grave or as exiles to the Assyrian homeland. And this is often a very pivotal point in Israelite history because it marked a dramatic change to their identity, but it also marked a dramatic change in their relationship with God. Uh, for centuries, they lived in peace in the promised land, but now they have literally lost absolutely everything. Rather than being led to the promised land like in Exodus, they're now led out as they're exiled from it and brought into a foreign nation. But like the water bears mentioned earlier that seem to live on no matter what calamities you throw its way, God's faithfulness also endures no matter what tragedy happens to his people. And no matter how unfaithful his people are, God's faithfulness still endures. And so in today's passage, we see that clearly from the very first verse to the very last. And because of the absolute destruction of the nation of Israel, Isaiah, he actually accurately calls the people of God as the stump of Jesse in verse 1. The magnificent tree that was supposed to be a blessing to all nations is now cut down and destroyed by the Assyrians. Nothing remains but a dead stump. And in Isaiah's mind, there's a very burning question he had. God promised that the line of David would, would remain forever, that God would, would bless this nation. But if God's very own nation, if God's very own people is destroyed and the lineage of David is broken, then how will God's faithfulness endure? And so through divine inspiration, Isaiah actually receives a message of hope from God. 
that despite God's people being reduced to a dead stump of a tree, God promises that his faithfulness will endure. No matter the circumstance, no matter how impossible the situation is, God does not walk away from his promises, but stands firm to fulfill them, even when it looks absolutely impossible in our eyes. And so how does he do this? So we see that from a dead stump that is the nation of Israel, God promises to Isaiah that he will bring forth a living shoot that will develop into a beautiful branch, bringing life to its surrounding through its fruits. And this prophecy is actually not a prophecy of a new people of God, right? God's not going to raise up a new people of Abraham, but rather the prophecy of a new king who will lead the Israelites once again. And the way that Isaiah describes the lineage of this king is actually incredibly interesting if you look at it. So far, if you read through, you know, Kings and Chronicles, all the kings of Judah are said to come from the line of David. By Isaiah saying that this new king will come from the line of Jesse, Isaiah is telling the people who are now sent off to Assyria, they're telling these people to prepare themselves for a new David. Just as Jesse is the father of David, this new king will be the new David for God's people in exile. And this new king will be unlike any other king that they've had before. This king will be filled by the spirit of God where he will gain wisdom and understanding, the ability to understand the people's heart and judge them with wisdom. He will gain counsel and power from the spirit to devise right courses of action and the power to see it through. And the thing that will separate this king from all other kings is that he will be filled with the knowledge and the fear of the Lord, meaning that this king's entire life is informed by a relationship with God mentally, religiously, and morally. That this relationship is marked with reverence, loyalty, and worship of God. And so the picture that we get here is of a king whose relationship is so deep with the Father that the king's entire life is informed by who God is. That just as God is holy and righteous, this king also will be holy and righteous through his relationship with the Father and through the indwelling of the spirits. And because of the indwelling of the spirits, righteousness and justice are not something that this king must strive to acquire, rather he embodies righteousness and justice, that he is righteousness and justice, that out of this dead tree of Israel, a shoot of righteousness, holiness, wisdom, and justice will spring out. And that, and the thing is, at this point, you know, I think like all this talk is kind of rhetorical, it's kind of abstract. We can talk all about these attributes of this king, but what does it look like when the king actually applies it? And one thing we see is that with righteousness, he will judge the needy with justice. He will give decisions for the poor of the earth. And the thing is, when we, when we look at the word judge, at least for us as Americans, um, especially judge the needy, uh, kind of makes us stop in our tracks for a moment. Like, whoa, what, what do you mean by judge? Like, like, they're in a terrible position already. What do you mean by judging them? Uh, is this king going to condemn the poor of the earth? And a common condemnation, actually, against the nation of Israel is that Yahweh, that Yahweh delivers, is that the kings of this earth, the rulers of this earth, they're supposed to protect. They're actually supposed to support the neediest of society. And Yahweh condemns them because they actually have not done that. 
And so those without fathers, those without husbands, they, they do not have the means to support themselves. They had nothing, literally, to fill their stomachs besides sorrow and grief. And the thing is, the kings who are in power, the kings who had plenty, they're supposed to treat those who are poor with fairness. They're supposed to provide for them in their time of need. There's an expectation that those who are the neediest in society would receive special protection from the king. But what actually happened in history? Well, definitely not that. The king instead would show favoritism to those who had power. The king would collude with those who had money. The king would lend his ear to those who would repay him back with favors later, something obviously the poor could not do. And so when justice was required, when the poor of the earth needed assistance from the king, the king vanished from their sight, and the people remained helpless. But this new shoot from the line of Jesse, this new David, is not like the old kings. He lends his ears equally to all, whether they are rich or poor. He sees the hearts and the soul of a person and gives correct judgments. And to those who are in need, he gives generously. To those who are silenced, they are now heard. And to those who cry for justice, they will now receive it. But more than that, this king will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, which is a metaphor that expresses the type of power, the type of moral force that this leader has, that even creation itself is subject to his judgment. And with this moral force, the king, with his breath on his lips, he will slay the wicked. This is a king who owes no allegiance to any earthly power. He renders judgments without any concern for political ramifications. He's not scared of offending the powerful. He gives generously to the poor, and he rules the nation with fairness, no matter who you are in society. And in the life of Christ, we actually see all of this play out. We see that Christ, filled with the Spirit, he looks into the hearts of those who are rich and poor alike with fairness. To those who suffer, he gives generously. To those who are sick and dying, he heals them and gives sight to the blind and allows the lame to walk again. To the rich, he condemns their greed, but he also openly welcomes them if they repent, just like Zacchaeus, the tax collector. And because Christ did not succumb to the pressure of corruption or influence by those in power, but judged them for their hypocrisy, those in power actually had no choice but to end the life of Christ. But the truly hopeful message of Isaiah's vision is that it not just looks forward to the coming of Christ, but actually it looks much further than that. It actually looks at Christ's return, where Christ's rule as king is fully realized. And Isaiah offers a vision where Christ's reign is actually complete, where righteousness and justice are no longer something that we would hope for in our leaders and rulers, but it will actually be a reality for all people. And the vision that Isaiah gives is actually so spectacular that the only way we can really describe it is as a new creation. Whereas in verse 1, the king was described as a shoot coming out of a dead tree, in the last verse we have today, he is now described as the roots of Jesse. And so rather than being a shoot that springs to life from a dead tree, this king is now the roots 
that gives life itself to the dead tree. The king will ultimately bring life back to the people of God and life back into the land. Death will become such a, such a foreign concept that even the nature, the, uh, the nature of the relationship between predator and prey will be extinguished. In verse 6, Isaiah says that the wolf will live with the lamb. And the word that is used here for live, it's actually more accurately translated as to welcome, as a resident. Uh, it is a verb used to describe foreigners living in Israel, where they are protected by sacred rules of hospitality. And so in this new creation, we see that it is the wolf that now lives with the lamb. It is the lamb who welcomes the wolf into its abode. As one commentator said, it is as if the lamb is calling out to its predator, to the one that killed it. It's calling him out and say, come in, you are welcome. It is a creation where those who are formerly violent and deadly will live in peace and harmony with those who are helpless and innocent. It is a nation and a new creation where the fears of insecurity and danger and evil are totally removed from society. And it's a new creation where even the fundamental nature of animals are even changed. And as a result of this dramatic renewal, this dramatic reversal of creation, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the people. The nation will rally to him and his resting place will be glorious. It will be a creation where all people, Gentiles and Jews alike, will see the goodness of God and rally to him, knowing that peace and salvation can only be found in this root of Jesse that gives life to all. All people will gather home in the kingdom of God and in the reign of Christ. And so as we round up our sermon today, I want us to practice a little bit of imagination. Um, on my flight home, I, I wondered for a moment what it would be like to, to maybe go back 5,000 years and, and steal someone who lived maybe in the time of Jesus or maybe in the time before that and then bring them back into the future, into a plane, and to kind of see his or her reaction to, to us sitting in a chair kind of like floating in the sky, right? Like, what, what would this person think? Like, oh my gosh, like this is, this is absolutely beyond our wildest of imaginations. But then I thought, what, do, what would it be like for us to move forward into the future ourselves? To picture and to think of the glorious future that awaits us. To imagine, to think of a new creation where death and evil are totally removed. To see a vision of a future where everything, the entire world, is ruled by righteousness and justice. And as we envision this, I encourage you to live, to live in this hope, to let it fill your hearts, to be able to hope against all hopes, just as Isaiah hoped for the coming of the Messiah during a time when all he saw around him was death and destruction. I encourage you all today to place your hearts in the hope of the gospel and to live in it throughout the day and throughout the weeks to come. At this moment, why don't we come together uh, for a time of prayer? Heavenly Father, uh, today we, we pray and 
we thank you for this new vision you have given us. And we eagerly, we eagerly wait uh, in anticipation of a time uh, when the wolf will live with the lamb, uh, where the leopard will lie down with the goats and the calf and the lion together. Whether that will be the reality or, or just a metaphor, we'll never know until your return. But we know that death will be no more and that righteousness and truth will flow throughout the lands. And so lift our hearts today. Uh, let us for a moment, Lord, experience uh, the reality of the age to come so that we will be strengthened uh, to continue to run this race that is our faith. We lift our troubles and our concerns to you, knowing that no matter how many promises you've made, they are always a yes in Christ. And so let the amen be spoken by us today to your glory. In your most precious son's name we pray. Amen.